open your Bibles with me to Psalm 16. We continue on our journey through the Psalms. We'll finish this up in just a couple of weeks, and uh, we'll move into the Gospel of John. But as we look at Psalm 16, we notice that there's no clear direction in the superscription of the period of life that David was in when he penned these words. You'll see also that that superscription there is the Hebrew word miktam. It's used in five other psalms, in Psalms 56 through 60. Unfortunately, the true meaning of the word is unknown. It seems to have been a musical term that has been lost over time. And there are a couple of root verbs and words that are a part of that, which put together would mean golden peace. And so some believe that that might be what this alludes to, because of the lyrical quality of the message. So I've titled this, The Joy That Comes From Trusting God. It's a longer title than normally I would put on a psalm, or on a a sermon rather. But this psalm is so rich in what it teaches us about a proper response to this God that we know and we have been saved by, and that we live and we serve Let's read together, beginning in verse 1 through 11, and we'll see what God's Word says to us today. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good beside you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. You know, in that title, the joy that comes from trusting God is to be a very distinct reality in our lives. There should be exceeding joy that comes from our lives that is evident in our lives because we trust in God. We throw out the word loving God, trusting God, faith in God. But does that belief system, does that personal experience translate in such a way that you and I can possess joy regardless of our circumstances. This is the experience that David has, and this is what we're going to look at as we go through this psalm together. It's based in two big sections. The first one is, number one, David's confidence. David had great confidence in God, and in this first section, it's expressed in two ways. The first one is the confidence that David had in God's presence. Verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. It's a familiar-sounding opening verse to a psalm. We've looked at this in some of the psalms we've already looked at, but there's something very different in the way this is phrased in the context 
of the psalm with which it is written. This is very different because there's no mention of an enemy. There's no mention of evil or wickedness. There's no feeling of danger in David's life. It's simply this confidence that David has in the presence of God. It is a simple declaration of faith and trust in God and in David's relationship with God. It is an understanding of David's need and his request for God's constant care and protection in his life. You know, you and I are sometimes guilty of not being sure of God's presence. We think in some theoretical way He is there, but is He really with me? Does He really and truly dwell inside of me? Can I know that I can call on Him and be confident that God hears me? You see, confidence in God's presence means that we know, we know that God is with us. The other part of that confidence in God's presence is that commitment to being aware of God's presence in our life by calling out, by being dependent upon His care and His protection in our lives. You know, we often turn to the Lord when we're facing great difficulty or circumstances or uncertainty. We know that we need God's care. We know that we desire His protection in those times. But much like the nation of Israel, when things were going well, we didn't have that heightened awareness of God's presence. We didn't feel like we needed His care and His protection. And this is what David is saying here, very simply in this opening verse. He's asking God to preserve him, which means to keep, to watch over. He's asking God to keep me, to watch over me, in a way a mother would watch over her baby as he slept, or as a toddler as he crept through the house. This is what David is asking. He's asking God to watch over him in such a way that he would be able to do the things that God had called him to do. We've already looked at this in a previous psalm. The refuge is this safe place that God provides. David is just simply asking for God to watch over him and to keep him close in the safe place in the shadow of the Almighty. David's trust is in the Lord and in the Lord alone. As a refuge, David is confident in the safety that comes from knowing and trusting in God. It is a confidence in who the Lord is and what He is able to do as David's God. David's confidence is rooted in his relationship with God. I wonder if the times in our life when we're not so certain about the presence of God or God's care and protection in our life, I wonder if that is more obvious to us in the times when we aren't walking with Him as close as we should or if that's just simply our experience in the hard times. Are you confident in the presence of God? Do you know that you know that God is with you, that He is watching over and taking care of you in such a way that it brings great joy into your life? The second thing that we see here that David is certain of is God's goodness. 
David has no doubt about the goodness of God. He says in verse 2, I said to the Lord, and you'll notice in your Bible that is an all cap Lord, which means Yahweh. I said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. So woven into the understanding that David has, has about who God is, we see the foundation of David's life. And it's expressed in these three realities. Letter A, Yahweh is the true God. He says, I said to the Lord, I said to Yahweh, in a world of many false gods, of many man-made deities, of many substitutes and distractions, there is but one true God. David lived amongst a people who were constantly guilty of worshiping false gods, of giving their attention and their affection to idols. And David makes this declaration very clear. There is but one true God, and that is the God Yahweh. You know, you and I, if we're not careful, take for granted the reality that we know that He is the one true God. I've heard many, many people say, who don't profess to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, oh yeah, I believe in God. I'm not so sure what you call this deity, but I believe that He is one. That's not the kind of declaration that David is making. That's not the kind of confidence that David has in the one true God. He says, you are the one true God. We need to remember, church, that God is exceedingly good and gracious towards us and allowing us to know that He is the one true God. He's not Allah. He's not Buddha. He's not some other figure. He is the one true God. Secondly, Yahweh is David's God. David says, I said to Yahweh, You are my Lord. You're not a God. You are my God. The word there is Adonai, and it means that you are my Lord. It is the personal commitment to God and it is submission to the Lordship of God in David's life that is, that is being expressed here. Not only are you the one true God, but you are my Lord. You are the one who rules and reigns over my life. You are the one that leads and guides and directs, and you are the one that I will follow. If you've gone back and looked at the life of David, and if you've looked at the nation of Israel as a whole, and watched their leaders, when they submitted to the Lordship of God, things went great within their rule and within the nation of Israel. But when they did their own thing, when they went their own way, when they denied his instruction, or they just did their own thing without seeking the Lord, things went off the track very, very quickly. So we see that David's personal commitment here is to submit himself to this one true God. We are all a part of God's creation, and He allows for some of us to become His children, and His children are to live in submission to the one true God. Thirdly, we see here, letter C, Yahweh is His good. It's a strange phrase. It's an unusual statement that David makes here. But he says, I have no good beside you. God is good. God is good all the time. 
God is exceedingly good in our lives. And what David, what David declares here is the reality that he has nothing good other than God Himself. God is holy and righteous and gracious. He's loving and kind and merciful and filled with forgiveness. He is generous and faithful and long-suffering. Hey, God is good. But God is also the source of all goodness. We're familiar with James 1.17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God is exceedingly good because He has given us Himself, but He has also chosen to provide us with so many other good things. Everything that we enjoy in our life is a gift from God Himself. David expresses the goodness of God in four ways in the following verses. Letter I. David has been blessed with the spiritual family. Verse 3 says, As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones, and whom is all my delight. Now, don't make any mistake about this. David is not worshiping people. He is not committing to follow people. He is just saying that the spiritual family that you have given to me, I find tremendous pleasure and delight in. Saints is the word holy ones. That's simply what it means. Those who are in a relationship with God just like David. If God is your father, then I am your brother. We are a part of God's incredibly large Spiritual family, those that are in the earth, those that are living amongst Him and share in the same relationship and commitment to the one true God is who David is talking about. He's not talking about the saints who are in the heavenlies. He's talking about the saints who are populating the earth with Him. These individuals, those of God's chosen family, these saints are majestic in the sense that they reflect the majesty of God in their lives and they live their life for Him, and they give testimony to the transforming work of His constant presence in their lives. David says that he has great delight in those who love God and who share in this relationship with Him. You know, you and I have been blessed with an incredible spiritual family, and most of them we will never get the privilege of even meeting. Did you ever thought about that? Right now, all around the world, people are worshiping God. Right now, people are gathered around the Bible as its source for life. They are crying out to the Lord for His help. And they are giving themselves to Him and worship. And we don't even know who these people are. We read some of what they've written. We sing some of what they have penned. We play some of that that they have orchestrated for us. We read about their lives and their witness and their testimony and the evidence of God's work in their lives. You and I are a part of an incredible spiritual family. Even within this local body of believers, it is a great privilege to know and to be in fellowship with one another. I wonder how much we truly value the blessedness that comes in being a part of God's family. Do we value and do we treasure 
the family that God has given us, even in this little group that's gathered here today, amongst the countless millions who would call God as their father. Next, we see that David has been blessed with spiritual truth. We see this in verse 4. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. David's world was filled with those who worshipped false gods. Even within the Jewish nation, there were those who worshipped idols. And they did not give themselves to God in a way that they knew they should. To know the one true God and to know the truth about this God is an incredibly tremendous blessing. You know, you and I didn't just discover the truth about who God is. It was revealed to us. It was given to us. God opened up our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the truth about who He is. He enabled us to know Him and to respond to Him. We didn't academically deduce that this must be the one true God, and then randomly choose to give our lives to Him. To know who He is, to know the truth about who He is, is an incredible blessing because many do not. Several things of note here that are mixed into this verse. David says, The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. That is a great warning for you and I who know the one true God, but who are tempted to wander away into giving ourselves more wholeheartedly to substitutes than we are to give ourselves to God, the sorrows of those who worship false idols will be greatly multiplied. Not only in this life, but also in the life to come. You know, in this life, the sorrow of those who worship a false god is multiplied Because there's no real benefit in the worship of a false god. A false god provides a false hope. A false god provides a false benefit. It's false help. It's false joy. There's nothing of substance that comes in the worship of a false god. The the sorrow of the idolater will be multiplied in the life to come because it means eternal separation from this one true God who is loving and merciful and kind and generous We also see here that David did not participate in their worship. He says, I shall not pour out their drink offerings. And there's a lot of different possibilities in what this means. It probably identifies some aspect of worship in the context of idolatry. It's theory that it could be human blood that has been shed. It could be that infants or children have been sacrificed to these false gods. But blood offerings were common in Eastern religions, just as it was within the nation of Israel. They offered a sacrifice and they shed the blood of an animal in order to make that sacrifice to God. And what David is saying here is that I will have nothing to do with their blood offerings and whatever detail that actually means. And David goes on to say, I will not even mention the name of those who are the false gods that are being worshipped. They could be too numerous. They could be too evil. They are such a contrast of the holiness of the one true God that David doesn't even want to utter their name 
in the context of what he is writing here about this God. Because he has great confidence in his, in his presence and he has great confidence in his goodness. But David's purpose isn't to deal with idolatry, but it is to celebrate who God is and what God has done for him. Next we see that David has been blessed with a spiritual inheritance. He says in verse 5, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The words portion and cup are used synonymously here to describe what God has given to David as an inheritance. Now, when we hear the word inheritance, our ears perk up, don't we? An inheritance? Ooh, what am I getting? Who's giving it? How much will it be? What will it be like? What can I do with it? But what do you see as the inheritance that David has been given from God? He says, you are my portion. You are what fills my cup. You see, the inheritance that God has given to David is God Himself. Is that it? Really? What can I really do with that? Where can I take that? How will that benefit me? Oh my gosh, would we ever think such a thing? To think that God has given us Himself as an inheritance which we celebrate in the giving of Jesus Christ and Him being our Lord and our Savior and the promise that we will spend eternity with Him, it is far greater than any physical, earthly, temporary, worldly thing that we could ever be given. But we have to know the value of the thing that we have been given. Of primary importance to David is this simple truth. God has given David himself. You are my portion. You are what fills my cup. And when he says, you are my lot, he means by that, you are what sustains me. Remember, David has said that you are the only good that I have. Jesus would say that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You're familiar with that, right? You're also familiar with in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh. And so when we think about what Jesus said, that man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, He's talking about God Himself. Man will live by God and by God alone. This inheritance that David has been given is far greater than the incredible kingdom that he ruled over and the vast wealth that was at his disposal. David celebrated the fact that God was his inheritance. The last blessing we see here is that he has been blessed with a physical inheritance. Verse 6, The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. That phrase, the lines have fallen to me, is a description of the conquered land being divided amongst the twelve tribes of Israel. When you look at a map and you see the lines that are drawn that divide state from state and county from county, this is the idea that David has in mind. As he looks over the vast amount of, of land that is now a part of the kingdom of God, the promised land, David looks at the lines and how they've been divided amongst the 12 tribes of Israel, and he says, 
This is a beautiful thing. You see, the promised land was central to the covenant that God made with Abraham all the way back in the early pages of the book of Genesis. God simply said to to Abraham, follow me and I will take you to a land that I will show you. Central to the covenant, central to their faith in God, was the blessing of a land that would be theirs, that God would rule, and the kingdom of God would exist. Moses failed to fulfill this. Joshua began the process, but it was David who was used by God to define the promised land and bring his people into the fulfillment of the covenant that God had made. So as David looks over the land that God has given to his people, David sees that it is good, and he says, this is a beautiful thing to me. Today, you and I, we aren't pursuing a physical inheritance. We are pursuing, we are living and looking forward to the creation of a new heaven and a new earth when God will establish His rule over this new earth and it will be God's kingdom and God's family will live forever with Him in this new world that God is going to create. We eagerly await this creation to be able to live forever in perfect harmony with God and all God's people and the perfection of the way that God has created it. So as David reflects on God's presence and on God's provision, His goodness, we see the second part of our outline here. It is David's response to who God is and what God has done for him. The first part of David's response is this. Number one, he will praise the Lord. Verse 7 reads, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. To bless the Lord is to praise the Lord. It is to celebrate not only what He has done, but first and foremost, who He is. If God never gave us a single solitary blessing, He would still be worthy of all of our praise, all of our worship, and all of our adoration because He is God. David's reason for praise is explained. He says that God has counseled him. That means to advise and to instruct God appeared to David in dreams and in visions, and he directed David in the way that he was to go. And so this blessing, this praising of God, it is recognition of God's teaching him, of revealing himself to David, and of leading him and guiding him, and allowing him to enjoy this unique position as the Lord's anointed, the King of Israel, the one that God has chosen to use to establish the parameters of the promised land. To counsel, this instruction is firmly fixed in David's life, so much so that it even instructs him in the night. David just didn't turn to God when he needed an answer to a question or when he faced a problem. What this means is that David meditated on this counsel. David meditated on these instructions in the night. His entire being was captured by who God was and what God had taught him. As he thinks about and meditates on God's teaching, this is what drives David's life. You you and I today possess a completed revelation, don't we? 
from beginning to end, it is God's declaration of who He is, how to know Him, how to please Him. And far too many Christians are guilty of rarely, if ever, cracking open their Bible to know this God, to be directed by His teaching. It's a great truth for us to know that God doesn't leave us without all the information that we need in order to trust Him and to follow Him. See, God doesn't give us all the information, but He gives us all the information that we need to be able to trust Him. But God, if You would just show me the details, He says, trust me. Well, God, there's a lot of uncertainty. I'm just not sure what I should do or where I should go. He says, trust me. You see, it is our faith in God that energizes us in following Him and in serving Him. You and I get caught up with the unknowable that it stops us dead in our tracks and keeps us from following Him in the way that we should. You know, it's hard to praise the Lord when you're wandering around wondering, where am I going? What am I doing? What's the purpose here? That wasn't David's issue. David received the counsel of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord. It led him. It guided him. He meditated on it. And because of this, David was able to praise the Lord. Secondly, David will commit to the Lord. He says in verse 8, I have set the Lord continually before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. To set something before you means to fix it firmly in place so that it cannot ever be moved. It is a seat of priority. It is a place of great emphasis. And so what David is saying here is that I have set Yahweh right in front of me continually, all the time, because I have committed myself to Him. He makes an intentional commitment to the Lord. He makes an intentional commitment to the teachings of the Lord and the instruction given to Him by the Lord. And because of that, this is a relationship of lordship and submission. I know who you are. I trust in who you are. I continually meditate and devote myself to what you told me about myself, about yourself, and I will submit to you and to you alone. For God to be at David's right hand means that God is both his advocate and his defender. As an advocate, he is speaking on behalf of David. As a defender, he is defending David against his enemies. This isn't a subservient relationship in any stretch of the imagination. It isn't as if David is telling what God is to do. What he is simply saying is, is that God is at my right hand, working on my behalf, carrying out His plans and His purposes in my life in such a way that I know as long as I am submitting to Him and following Him, He will lead me in the direction that I, will go, that I should go. And I will never be shaken in my life. I will never be worried and anxious and unwilling to follow because God is at my right hand as an advocate 
and as a defender. You know, an advocate is somebody that speaks on your behalf, that represents you before others. And this is the kind of relationship that David had great confidence in, that God was working on his behalf. Because of these truths, David says, I will not be shaken. Do you have a strong sense of God being an advocate for you? Do you have a strong sense of God working out His plans and His purposes in you and through you? Can you see how God is guarding you, protecting you, so that you can do what God has called you to do? See, if we don't have a great confidence in God being our advocate and God being our defender, it probably means that we have not made the kind of commitment to submitting ourselves to Him as we should. You know, there were times in my life when I had young kids and they would be doing something that was fearsome for them. They weren't sure what the outcome was going to be. They were nervous and they were worried. There was a great deal of uncertainty And as a father, I could say, it's going to be okay. Trust me. Just trust me and do this thing. And they would do it, and it would go well. And they would say something to the effect, I don't know why I was so worried. That's the kind of relationship we're to have with our God. We are to be so confident in who He is, and the reality that He is with us, that He is our advocate and our defender, our guidance and our protection, that we should be willing to follow Him wherever He would lead us to go. This is the kind of submission that David had. This is the reason that God was able to use David to define the parameters of the promised land. Thirdly, David says that I will rejoice in the Lord. Now this is very different from praising the Lord. He will rejoice in the Lord. Verse 9, Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. Because of what David has just said, who God is and how He has been leading him and protecting him, his heart, his innermost being, the core of who David is, is filled with joy. He is filled with joy because of God's strong presence. He is rejoicing in the Lord, in His relationship, in this intimate communication that He has with God. David says that my glory rejoices. Now, some have translated that word glory here with the word tongue. And the reason for that, if you have the NIV, is that translators looked back at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation from Latin, And some of the words don't translate in very clear. And so it can read that my tongue rejoices in you. But the actual literal word here is the word glory. So when David is saying that... Let me go back and read it. That my glory rejoices. He's been talking about his innermost being. He's been talking about his heart. He's been talking about his mind. And by the way, one of the words for heart is actually the word kidney, which in the Hebrew means the depth of who I am. 
It's kind of strange, isn't it? The New Testament stomach or bowels. But David's been talking about his heart and his mind and the core of his life. And so he says that my glory rejoices. It's likely that what David is talking about is that his glory rejoices as a reference to his being created in the image of God, his ability to think and to reason, the combination of the intellect and the will to know who God is, to be able to relate to Him, to be able to worship Him, to be able to submit to Him, to be able to follow Him. That is the glory of God in us. The glory with which we have been created in the image of God. And this is likely what David is reflecting on. David's glory is that part of him that reflects the image of God that has not been tarnished by sin. The impact of sin in our lives diminishes our desire to serve God. It distorts our understanding of who God is. It deceives us into thinking that we can be acceptable to God in other ways. But in the truest sense of the image of God, we relate to Him rightly and most perfectly. And many believe that this is probably what David is referring to. David isn't boasting in himself. He's not rejoicing in himself or in what God has allowed him to do. But he's rejoicing in the God who is leading him and working through him. But David is also rejoicing in the Lord for new things that he will introduce in the final verses of this psalm. David rejoices in, letter A, protection in this life. Second part of verse 9 says, My flesh also will dwell security. securely. That flesh is my physical presence, my body, my fleshly being. David knows that his life is being lived under the constant care and protection of God. His physical life, no matter what happens to him, is secure in God. There is this great sense in David's life that he is protected while he lives this life on earth. Letter B, there is protection in death. Verse 10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now this verse has messianic implications to it. It was used in the book of Acts as a reference to Jesus' resurrection, the fact that He was only in the ground for three days and His body did not undergo any kind of decay. In that sense, it is uniquely applied to Jesus and to Jesus alone, but it does mean something similar for David. Although David would die physically and his body would go into the ground and decay just as every other physical body will he will not be separated from God that's really at the heart of what David is saying here he is saying my soul will not be abandoned to be abandoned is to be separated from he is saying that my innermost being my soul will not be separated from God even in death. God will not allow, which literally means that God will not give, your Holy One, which literally means a godly one, and it is through the translation in our modern languages that we have made this a reference to Jesus, which is not inaccurate to do so, but you lose sight of the fact that this really says the godly ones, 
God will not give the godly one to undergo decay, which means corruption in the pit. So to paraphrase that, what David is saying is that you will not give your godly one, or plural ones, to undergo corruption in the pit. What David is saying is, when I die, I will not be abandoned from the presence of God. When I die, I will be joined to God. Isn't that a great blessing? Isn't it great to know that? To be certain of that? Now, the full scope of God's revelation was not fully developed in the Old Testament as it related to the afterlife, as it related to the role of the Messiah. It was limited, and David's understanding was incomplete. I believe that oftentimes, Old Testament writers wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit in ways they didn't fully understand. But as we look backwards through the lens of the New Testament and the completion of God's revelation, we can read things like that and go, oh, I understand what that means. This is what that means. And this is exactly what we talk about when we read this to have messianic implications as it speaks to Jesus and His resurrection. But we know as we look through the completed revelation that Jesus isn't the only one that will be raised. Isn't that right? All of us who are God's children, who relate to Him as the one true God, we will be raised just as He was raised. David didn't understand that in the completion of the revelation or in the completeness that you and I would know it today. But that is the truth and that is what David is saying is that when I die, I will not be separated from God. The resurrection of Jesus gives every believer confidence that we won't suffer corruption in the pit when we die, but we will be raised to new life just as Jesus was raised. Let us see. Protection in eternity. Protection in this life. Protection in death. And protection in all of eternity. Verse 11 concludes, You will make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Almost every commentator believes that this has an eternal implication in what David is saying. It's a restatement of the central elements that we find in the psalm. But there also is this future sense that is is expressed here to be completed in eternity. The path of life is the path that God has established in the Old Testament. Living life in and under the Old Covenant, waiting for the arrival of the Messiah to see God's kingdom established on earth and to worship Him forever. In the New Testament, it is coming to God through Jesus Christ, who is the way and the truth and the life, and it is living a life surrendered to His Lordship. In God's presence, in the context of this intimate relationship, what do you find? We find the fullness of joy. The fullness of joy is found in our relationship with Him. But in reality, the fullness of joy won't be fully experienced until we see Him as He really is, as the scales of sin has been completely removed, as the veils have been torn down, and we see God in all of His glory, and we worship Him, and see Him as He really is. Jesus said, I have come to give you life, and life more 
abundantly. In John 15, as Jesus was walking His disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane and to eventually to the cross, He's explaining to them about the relationship between the vine and the branches and the importance of abiding in Him and being in close fellowship with Him. He concludes that passage by saying, in this is the fullness of your joy. This relationship is what will bring to your life great joy. In God's presence in this life, and most especially in the life to come, as we see Him with crystal clarity, our joy will be made full. In God's right hand, living in His protection, secure in our relationship with Him, there are pleasures forever. But you see, the pleasures aren't limited to the time of eternity. The pleasures are to be experienced now. Because God is the one true God. He has chosen to reveal Himself to us. He sits at the right hand as an advocate and a defender, leading us and guiding us, blessing us and providing for us. I wonder what it is that really keeps us from finding greater joy in our relationship with God. It's as if there's a deficiency on God's part that for some reason we find it difficult to find true joy in our relationship with Him. There are far too many mopey Christians myself included, who don't find great joy in a relationship with God. God wants us to be overflowing with joy because of who He is. As we meditate on Him, as we think about what He has done for us, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the hardships, regardless of the difficult road that's ahead. God says, in me, in your relationship with me, you can find the fullness of joy. Would you pray with me? Father, we acknowledge that so often it seems as if we live a joyous, joyless Christian life. That true joy comes from a promotion or a new toy, the alleviation of some kind of a difficulty in our life. Father, I pray that you would teach us where true joy is really found. I pray, Father, that you would bend our hearts before you so that we are able to truly focus on you to set you before us continually so that we would prioritize our relationship with you above everything and anything else. God, thank you that you've given to us all the information that we need to be able to trust you. We pray that you would give to us greater faith to follow you 
and to find the pleasures in you that will last forever. We know that won't come from a religious expression. We know that it won't come from going through the motions. We know it won't be found in substitutes. It will only be found in you. Father, direct us to yourself. Continually show us how great you are, how faithful you have been. And may you find in us a heart that is truly filled with joy because we trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name.